Sentire Media. It is the 26th of April, 1945. The day before, the 25th, the CLN, the Comitato di Liberazione Nazionale, the organism set up by the opposition to the fascist regime, which has been collaborating with the advancing allies since 1943, has declared total insurrection. On that same 25th of April, a meeting occurs between members of the CLN and Benito Mussolini to discuss his surrender. Things do not go as the dictator wanted. So today on the 26th, rather than give in to total surrender, he prepares to flee. Ironically, Two groups of fascists are on their way to defend their dictator to the last man. But rather than make a heroic last stand, Mussolini insists on his escape. He is no longer the sword-dueling young man of the early 20s. He is old and broken. As we know well, his flight does not last long. He is captured and then executed by the partisans. To then have his body hung up upside down, along with other members of the fascist regime and his lover, Clara Petacci, in Piazza Loreto, Milan. Some feel that justice has been done, including the crowds that show up to kick and spit on the bodies of the fascist leaders. This includes a woman who shoots Mussolini's body five times. Five bullets, one for each of the sons she has lost during the war. Others feel that putting Mussolini on trial would have allowed the national reckoning that Italy perhaps so badly needed. We have just celebrated the 77th anniversary of the 25th of April, Italy's Liberation Day. Unfortunately, many now do not even remember why we celebrate, and even worse, some are starting to question why we celebrate at all. That is why it is of vital importance to remember and to teach. Thanks also to publications such as one which is out today, Before Evil, by Professor Brandon K. Gaucher, Director of Global Education at the Derry Field School in New York and adjunct professor of history for Fordham University. The publication looks at the lives of some of history's most notorious dictators, Benito Mussolini, Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, among others. I really enjoyed interviewing Brandon. His passion and eloquence made me want to go and sign up for one of his courses. We spoke in particular about Benito Mussolini, but also more in general about the book and the message that Brandon wants to convey. I really hope you enjoy this interview. Right, so, Brendan, first of all, thank you very much for coming to the show. 
My pleasure to be here, Mike. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to have you. Uh, thank you very much because as one of one of my favorite things when I interact with an author is I get to read a book that I otherwise wouldn't have read because I'm a slave to my timeline. So thank you very much for taking me out of that timeline and giving me some enjoyable hours there. So let's start by looking at the reason behind the choices you made on how to approach these characters that we mentioned. Why go back and have a look at their childhood? You explain it very well in the introduction. Can you go through that reasoning for us, please? Yeah, sure. So when we think about despots, dictators, these are mass murderers who committed crimes against humanity. You know, appropriately, we're seeing them through the lens of those crimes. And, and that's very important. But what we're doing as historians is, is not only emphasizing the heinous nature of their crimes, but we're trying to examine people like Mussolini or Stalin or Mao is explicable. And if we do not make the effort to do what is unsettling to do, which is to examine them as human beings, we lose sight of how human beings commit crimes against humanity. It is, uh, I think, much easier. And it, at a level, it seems appropriate to demonize Joseph Stalin or Mao Zedong because they remain guilty beyond doubt for immense suffering for so many millions of human beings. But there was a time in their lives before they were ideological fanatics, before they committed mass murder. And so the framing of the book is to examine these dictators before they were evil as young people. There's three parts to the book. I start in the first part by looking at them at the end of their lives. I provide an overview of their crimes because it's so essential that readers fully understand their crimes, that there can be no diminishing of their guilt. To explain them can in no way begin ever to excuse them. But the reality remains that they were born, they grew up, they had favorite books, they loved mom, they argued with dad, they went to school, they had girlfriends. There is a human story to tell. And I am interested in the humanity of inhumanity because it brings us back to what we're supposed to be doing trying to explain what has happened, to not live in a world in which evil is this faceless apparition, which we can never really understand. Evil meaning actions that reflect a lack of empathy for other beings, I argue in this book, is a product of ideological fanaticism. Psychopathology is real. People have mental illnesses and do horrible things, and that's a big part of that explanation. But for these men, it is the power of ideological fanaticism ideas. Uh, and, and that's a core theme of looking at who they were as young people before that evil. That, that's a very interesting concept, I think. That's very important as well, that demonizing is almost a way of clearing our, our own conscience about these mm. people. You know, oh, that this could never happen to me. This could never happen here because these were monsters which go beyond humanity. So I, I really uh, appreciate this, this point of view. So Going in, obviously, we're, we're uh, on the uh, History of Italy podcast, so we're going to be talking a little bit more about Mussolini. And you mentioned the structure of your book. You start at the end of their lives or, let's say, at the height of their power. Um, how would you describe Mussolini as the leader of fascist Italy at the height of his power? Uh, Mussolini remains, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to emphasize something I write in the opening of this chapter, but a, a confounding contradiction by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Mussolini was a shameless opportunist who invents an ideology, a warmonger who proclaims peace, a philanderer, you know, one of the, probably the most sensational philanderers of, of this time we can think of, right? And 
uh, a philanderer who supposedly loves his wife. He writes to her just before dying with his mistress, right? Writes before dying with Clarita saying, quote to his wife, you have been for me the only woman whom I have really loved. Uh, a passionate bibliophile who ignores basic facts, an obsessive reader, obsessive reader, someone who would totally lie to your face that he could read Greek as Aris, works by Aristotle in the background. He couldn't read Greek. One of his sons one time uh, contradicted him on that in front of a group of people like, dad, you can't read Greek. Um, <laughs> a loving father, speaking of father and sons, uh, a loving father, right, who will spend little time with his kids. A tyrant who will sleep well, even as his world disintegrates. They say that last night, he sleeps soundly, that he snores. He should have died on so many occasions. Benito Mussolini should have been dead, right? He survives an ugly wound from friendly fire in the First World War. He participates in violent sword duels, including one in 1921, where he almost kills a newspaper editor that was critical of him. Um, he survives car and airplane crashes, assassination attempts. He's, he's cautious, and yet he's reckless beyond belief. He was a man who, quote, and I'm, I'm drawing on another historian's words here, combined the ferocity of the tyrant with the hesitations of a child, an individual who bragged that his skull was bulletproof, it wasn't, yet feared injections at the doctor's office. One time uh, his daughter said that, uh, you know, whenever they tried to give him an injection, he tensed up so hard that the needle um, actually broke. Uh, so uh, this is someone who sought to create a totalitarian regime in Italy, a war criminal, and this is very, very serious, right? A war criminal responsible for a million deaths. Uh, and for the devastation of Italy, and a participant in World War II, uh, a complicit in the Holocaust, the persecution of Italian Jews, North but Africa. also, I'm sorry, yes, please, yes, from Libya to Ethiopia, um, but also a tragic buffoon who became lost in a dream until its consequences shook him awake. War was a stern teacher after all for Benito. So that's uh, maybe a longer version of that explanation than you wanted. But I'll, I'll return to uh, my opening point, right? Benito Mussolini as a confounding, a confounding personality. Yeah, no, I think I think that's very well drawn picture of, of Mussolini. And if uh, our listeners hadn't had the opportunity to listen to the episodes we did on him, this is a very, very good synthesis of, of the man and, and his contradictions. And so following the structure of your book, Brendan, tell us um, why do you think his youth is still relevant to Mussolini in his time of power? If we frame this within the concept of the book, right, which is to look at people who weren't born as demons with horns, right? To look at people who were born as human beings. And there's very much about their youths that are relatable. The, the story of Mussolini's youth is so important for understanding his crimes as an adult is it brings us back to something that is more complex than opportunism, right? So the, the easy, I think, critique of Mussolini um, in terms of his ideological beliefs and how he comes to be a fascist is to say, okay, so he's a diehard socialist as a young person. And then magically he becomes what will be a fascist, right? During World War I, where he comes out for the war, uh, for, for Italy's intervention in the First World War. Um, what I see in the story of Mussolini's youth is someone whose abhorrence of poverty um, his belief that he could be this hero in life, that that was real, right? And his relationship with his father, Alessandro, doesn't speak to what we would commonly, that we almost want to see in the lives of dictators. We want to see the abuse, the, the abuse that someone experiences a youth that helps us explain why someone behaves in an abhorrent fashion as an adult. We don't see that in Mussolini's youth at all. He has a hard time at boarding school, but in many ways, he has lovely parents. Uh, he, he, he is close 
uh, to his mother. His father, Alessandro, in many ways, he is the, the Sunday morning activist that Benito say he might have been. He is a socialist activist, but he's small time. Uh, he is over, he does things like he's overwhelmingly generous with giving away the family's money to help yeah. those in need. Um, he is genuine. And his hatred of capitalism is something he thinks is holding people back. And so Mussolini grows up not in a home with a father that's uh, beating him. I mean, he was, there, there was discipline. I mean, he was spanked, which, you know, any type of physical uh, discipline like that, you know, is obviously wrong and problematic. But my point is he doesn't have like an abusive father. So my point is this, uh, he does not have this childhood, right, where he is being uh, beaten and abused. He has good parents. Uh, and his earliest, some of his earliest experiences are listening to Victor Hugo's Les Miserables being read in a barn, right? The earliest experiences we see in Mussolini's life um, is not this despot to be, although as a cousin will say, who's quoted uh, by an Italian historian, Monelli, will say he was always arrogant. You know? he, he was always, always arrogant from a very young age, very grandiose. But we see someone whose relationship with his father helped cement a, a genuine hatred of poverty, um, a genuine hatred of injustice. And now we're getting into a more complex story. Now we're getting to the suggestion, of, well, is Mussolini authentic and real in his youth? And growing up in his hatred of poverty and, and is it about more than opportunism about more within where his power will take him and we start to see overlapping stories which complicate our understanding of where these types of people come from uh, a fact here Mussolini uh, didn't speak really almost he was almost like three years old uh, did not speak and his mother you know went to a doctor's you know, not speaking I mean we're terrified and the doctor with what would prove wicked irony <laughs> would say don't worry Maria he will soon have plenty to say uh, so there are many uh, anecdotes from his youth that demonstrate the a degree of normalcy that we see with falling in love with ideas about how the role he could play like his father in fighting poverty and injustice. And for him, that takes him to Hugo and Zola. He's also um, kind of a ruffian as a kid. And this is another problematic take on it. People will say, oh, well, Benito Mussolini was a total delinquent as a kid. And that's how we get to the megalomaniacal mass murderer. Um, Lots of people are ruffians as kids and don't and get into <laughs> yeah, and, and grow up to be otherwise totally decent people. So yeah. I can speak further to it that we see the origins of Benito Mussolini falling in love with ideas. It is not abuse and trauma that creates Mussolini. Uh, it's exposure to profound books that sends him on the road towards an ideological path where he will begin to believe what he is doing is not about making men and women suffer, but it's about a larger ideological cause. And uh, that is troubling. We want to believe that these men did evil because they were evil. These men did evil because they believed from, through ideological radicalism that they were right. That, that keeps me up at night, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, 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 that's why I wrote the book. I can't, um, I, I can't square that. that. That unsettles me. And that's what we're supposed to be doing as historians. You, you engage a thorny problem um, and you examine it as explicable, even if we might never fully get to the bottom of it. For the moment, sticking with Mussolini, you mentioned that his uh, father, Alessandro Mussolini, was a sort of a Sunday morning activist, uh, which Mussolini, and, and you said, may have been, if not for a person, one person in particular that helped him early on in his life. And, and uh, you, you mentioned her, and I think it's great that you did, because it's one of those characters that sort of fell through the cracks of history. Uh, and that is Angelica Balabanov. Can, can you tell us something about her relationship with Mussolini, who, I mean, she, she was supposedly, according to some rumors, even the mother of his first child. Well, I think it is a fascinating story in the sense that she's one of many characters who's profoundly um, 
is profoundly important in his life. Uh, so the story of Balabanov is uh, Mussolini is this kind of nobody, right? When he will ultimately go to Switzerland. So we are talking about Benito Mussolini graduates from boarding school. We can talk about that. He arrives in Switzerland in July of 1902, and he is a radical in search of a cause. And to the extent that he's a socialist, he's, you know, he, he's read the Communist Manifesto, but this is someone who stands up with bulletproof confidence and argues with like people who have studied Marxism for a lifetime, right? But this is the unique thing that I, I struggle with uh, about the story of Mussolini in that regard. In one sense, it is this, uh, this empty bravado. There's a shallowness to his, his ideas. And yet in another sense, there is a deep, uh, what Balabanov will see as an authenticity, whether it is or not, that sucks people in. Um, you know, she, she will note that the first time she sees him at a meeting of socialists in Switzerland, she'll see him in the back. He is, speaks in what she will say is, quote, in almost an hysterical tone. She'll say, uh, I never seen a more wretched looking human being. Uh, and in, in response to questions about uh, his background, he'll just say, nothing can be done for me. Um, he gives the impression of extreme timidity. Um, and this is someone who is desperate for respect, you know, bulletproof bravado, and yet could be really, really vulnerable. And whether they had a sexual relationship, we're, we're, not, we're not quite certain. Uh, Benito Mussolini will say, you know, really, I think, ugly things about her. Uh, you know, when his wife accuses him of labor having an affair with her, he'll say things like, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, you know, quote, I would rather uh, sleep with a monkey than be involved yeah. with Angelica, uh, which is a cruel thing to say. And it also sounds like um, something histrionic that someone might say who wants to cover something up, but that is an assumption. We don't know for a fact whether or not they actually had a sexual relationship, although there is some evidence to suggest they did, but uh, we can get to that a little later. But the crucial thing, and I, and I will refer to her as Angelica, and this is a note to listeners, the book seeks to examine these individuals as not caricatures of history or only uh, you know, the monsters of history, which Benito Mussolini is, uh, but as human beings. So I use first names, which is normally a no-no, but I, I do this try to humanize my, the historical actors in this story. Angelica will be uh, attracted to him because of this vulner vulnerability. And it's really, it's really her who teaches him uh, philosophically what he needs to know to be able to hold his own in front of people who really know what they're talking about. I mean, if anyone walks on like Mussolini, uh, Benito, if you will, through Hegel and so on, it is Angelica. And even later on, he breaks who with had her a degree up. in philosophy, if I remember yeah. correctly. Yeah. And, is, and is brilliant. And, and is brilliant, right? Um, and it's worthwhile, it's worth to have her to have her own book just about her. And there are some great texts on her, including her own autobiography. But so she will help discipline his thinking. And the, the thing that's interesting is they break over the First World War when Benito Mussolini, Benito will leave the socialist, right? And, uh, and he will be hated on the left. Uh, but even later on, if she criticizes him, she writes a book about him, The Traitor. Even later on, he will say, uh, that this was someone who I would have remained a Sunday morning activist without her help. She really taught me how to speak and think in a way. And the crucial thing is, why was she interested in him? Why was she drawn to him? And there is this vulnerability in young Mussolini, which I think maybe you see in his adulthood as well. This bulletproof bravado alongside something, the je ne sais quoi that, that sucks you into his personality. Um, during all of our association, Angelica will reflect later in life, I was drawn to him by the knowledge that I was the only human being. And by the way, we're talking 1902. We're talking Benito Mussolini, 19 years old, right? And nobody. I was drawn to him by the knowledge that I was the only human being with whom 
He was completely himself, with whom he was relieved from the strain of bluffing. She becomes transfixed on him, and it becomes um, this fool's errand that she is going to help discipline his thinking, and maybe he'll get over his ego, and maybe he'll really contribute to the socialist cause. Quote, once he was well in mind and body, Valdivanov will remember thinking, once he really felt himself the equal rather than the inferior of other men, once his personal bitterness was allayed by human understanding and sympathy, his assertiveness, this childish will to power, and his intellectual confusion would pass away. Uh, those are sentiments she would regret deeply. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, you could, in a certain sense, maybe think that she, she sort of helped create a monster later on, you know, giving him um, those initial tools. <laughs> <laughs> like, he gives her credit. I mean, he says later on, and publicly he denounces her, uh, you know, they say the worst things about her possible, right? Because she's criticizing him. But privately, you know, he will say, uh, I, owe, I owe so much to Angelica. Like, I, what would have been without her? Uh, that, that, that must have burned. That was probably worse for her than a lot of the other insults, I imagine. So, surely, you know, surely. Because she, she survived the war. She died at 65, I believe. So she knew in her life, she knew what would happen and, and how things would end up. So, Even more interesting to compound that, you know, when the Russian Revolution happens and she's in the Soviet Union, what will be the Soviet Union anyway, and she falls afoul of Lenin and the Bolsheviks. Even there she sees the ideological story go wrong, right? And, and again, this is a crucial theme of the book, right? Monsters aren't real. Human beings are. Some human beings are monstrous, right? But that's a human story. And the human story about what before evil is about and what I think we should be doing everything we can to focus on are what are the ways that ideological radicalism, not just crass opportunism, not just that we want power. That is true. That is part of it. Human beings do this. But the road we go down when we begin to believe the ends justify the means. And I think uh, Angelica, so to speak, saw that play out in the Soviet Union with Lenin and the Bolsheviks. She saw that play out with Mussolini over the First World War and then what would be fascist Italy and uh, as a true believer in her ideas, that must have been difficult to reconcile. That, that must have, uh, it was something that plagued her. And, and she writes about it. Uh, read her book, My Life is a Rebel. Um, and she describes Mussolini in these moments and uh, what it was like to see him when he was, and this is an important point, listeners, a nobody. There was no reason to expect that he was going to rise to become what he did. He was a radical without a job who wanted to bluster when he was quite shallow in his thinking. And uh, she helped, helped him mature intellectually in a way that was very important for his future. Let, let me ask you now, Brendan, uh, while, while researching and, and while writing, was there any particular anecdote or any particular story that really stuck out or that you really thought was interesting that you'd like to tell us about? Uh, there's a couple of things I, I would like to touch on uh, that, when Benito, so to speak, right, when he will go to his, his first boarding school, um, which will, will have religious instruction, and uh, his mother, uh, who's really supporting the family, the dad, Alessandro, is a, is a blacksmith, but does, you know, only a sparing amount of work, and the mother, who is, you know, a humble teacher, they'll, they'll get him into what is supposed to be, a, you know, a first-rate boarding school, and, and it's at the school that uh, Benito Mussolini will experience class and equality in the flesh, so this is another thing about taking Benito's childhood seriously about who he was, his anger and abhorrence of poverty. He, he experiences this directly. At this first boarding school he goes to, 
uh, you know, they actually sorted the students by class and not, you know, not meaning like, you know, years they'd been there. I mean, that actually by wealth by and how much tuition class, they yeah. paid. Yeah. So, so he's actually experiences class inequality very directly where the third group that he's a part of receives the worst food, receiving food with ants in it. And, and the religious instruction is really, really, really intense. And uh, as a young person who was a delinquent at times and got in trouble a lot, which is part of the reason why his parents sent him there. He clashes with the priest over and over and over. But other things happen, right? And, and we're drawing on this from Benito's uh, you know, own memoirs that he'll write before the First World War, which gives it some credence in the sense that it's not written when he is a dictator as an adult, uh, but it is written before the First World War. And he'll describe things like, for instance, uh, when he has health problems that his, uh, the priest in control of the area, the building he's living in, won't let him use the bathroom with warm water. Uh, and his dad at one point will show up and argue with the priest over that. And then they'll mark, oh, he's, his dad's a people's leader. And we'll really get it from the priest. And I'm sure he earned it in certain respects. And so he has this back and forth in terms of discipline at this school as a young person where he experiences class inequality, which infuriates him, but also the nature of struggle. He, he demonstrates himself as a young person. He is going to fight. Uh, and he is going to be a fighter. At one point, the one, one of the priests, a guy named Bezzi, who Mussolini described as, quote, having a triangular face clad in a thin gray beard with an abominable visage, scrutinizing eyes, small scrutinizing eyes, quote, monkey hands and an unctuous voice giving emphasis to syllabus, so syllables in his pronunciation and a shrieking laugh. At one point, uh, Mussolini in his pre-World War I memoir will say that he was keeping a beat during class and the teacher came up and slapped him in the face really hard uh, and, and, and caused him his lip to bleed. And this is a classic story in, in the person he is. Rather than submitting at that point, he will stand up and throw an inkwell at the teacher uh, and will almost be expelled over it. At a later point, the first of two stabbing incidents in, in Mussolini's childhood school career, um, which again, historians for a long time will say, oh, you know, the, the, the murder in the making. And the fact that he has two stabbing incidents in school, right? That, that is noteworthy. Uh, but it, it is not, yeah, right. It, but it is not. Um, I, I don't think we should exaggerate the the trope of the violent hoodlum as a child, right? Uh, is is uh, a student that is in school with major disciplinary problems, and he acts out. And so, at one point, the experience he will describe, he will stab another student in the hand with a penknife uh, when he is uh, working with ink and paper, and uh, he knows he's really done something wrong now. Like he knows he's in real trouble. He's dragged to a room, the door is locked. And, and he said that uh, Bezzy came in. And Bezzy for him in many ways was a model tyrant because obviously uh, he deserved to be expelled over this, right? Uh, but he says he'll never forget. He'll, he'll, he'll never forget what is said to him when Betty, Bezzy walks in. He says, quote, your conscience is as black as coal. Uh, he says, I'll never forget those words. And that the priest dragged him outside and said, you'll sleep with the guard dogs tonight. And what happened was he was dragged outside the gate of the school saying, you're not sleeping in the dorms tonight, you're outside. And there was a courtyard, right? And the courtyard was controlled by dogs. And what Mussolini calls, recalls is that he decided he wasn't going to accept that. And so he claims in his pre-war memoir that he scaled the fence and tried to run to get into the school to sleep inside. But the door was locked and when he shook it, um, uh, it called the dogs over and he barely will make it over another fence and, and be spared, which begs the question whether this is true or not. It also begs the question, 
what would have happened if the guard talks got him? I guess would, that would be the end would of the Would that nine-year-old Benito Mussolini have been torn to bits? Is it apocryphal? Is it not? Here's what I don't think is apocryphal. That he experienced class inequality at a young age, which enraged him and drove his later ideological fanaticism. And that the instructors of the school, in many ways, from his perception, as he describes them, were model tyrants. Um, and and, and how, in terms of how you deal with this one. The second boarding school he goes to, Ends up being lovely, by the way. Yeah, the teachers yeah. are wonderful, and he'll give the exact opposite story that it was secular. They left him alone. Uh, he befriends an old elderly teacher who's nice to him. He spends most of his time as a huge bibliophile, reading up roof by himself. So that's that's number one. The second thing that I think it's important to note is that uh, Mussolini, as a young man, uh, commits sexual assault, and that he is guilty of sexual assaults, as he will be a, a sensational. Uh, philanderer as an adult, right? Engaging in all of these Tristan relationships, uh, many with intellectual collaborators. As a young man, he outright admits in this pre-war memoir that he, he that he rapes a young woman. And so this is something very, very serious that I think we have the, the, the moral obligation to emphasize that Absolutely. he commits sexual assault as a young person. Uh, and even more than that, the, the thing to get into a, about that crime is that he, when he's recalling it pre-World War I, describes it in a book, right? which seems to suggest either A, he did not fully understand, and this is a charitable view, he did not understand the, the harm he caused, do not understand the damage you did to this young woman, what you, what you did, or B, he felt no guilt about it. And, and so that is an interesting thing that begins to speak of the young person going that monstrous road, the either is justifying the, the, what is happening um, or is increasingly not feeling you know, th that conscience, that pain that one should feel over causing someone great harm. And we see the intersection, perhaps, of Benito Mussolini, the personality, whatever psychopathological influences are there, um, and, and Mussolini, this worldview, right, in which what he does is acceptable. What he does uh, is, is, you know, is, is going to be okay. And so we see this, this really disturbing, ugly opening in his youth as well, where it becomes not about misbehaving in school, uh, but, you know, but about something really upsetting and really disturbing and, and, and his admitting to it openly. One thing that resonates with me is, is that we constantly have to look within, you know, and that's, I think, an issue when we look at these dictators. It's very easy and, again, appropriate to demonize people who have committed monstrous crimes. But the demonization is problematic because it's, it starts to suggest, right, that there are these monsters among us, but it's not me. You know, evil is something evil is something that has nothing to do with me. And, you know, and I say this in the book that, uh, quote, thinking of ourselves as a distinct species from these men, it diminishes our ability to grapple with the conundrum we all share. The line between individuals doing awful things convinced they are just and people doing awful things knowing they're wrong is not always so clear. At what point can we ourselves become the villains without realizing it? How can we guard against as much? And the answer begins with considering what we have in common with monsters, quote unquote, themselves. Um, and how can we as people go down that road without realizing it? That, that's the step towards actions lacking empathy. That's the step towards crimes that cause real suffering for real people. Uh, and we should be the ones to stand up for that human dignity. Uh, oh, that's a and very we have good to ask point. how to do that. That's a very yeah. good point, Brandon, because these men obviously couldn't and didn't act alone. They, they did what they did with a consensus of often a substantial part of the society they governed. You know, so Mussolini's case in the end, it was sort of the, the, the bourgeois industrialists who supported him uh, in fear of the, the Bolshevik violence, which was a real threat. I mean, it's not like it, uh, that there was no threat of revolution in Italy at the time. But in the end, these men 
operated with the consensus of part of the people that they ruled. So it's a very important uh, point that you're making there. And so, so speaking of this group, we, we've been speaking about Mussolini, but your book also talks about Vladimir Lenin. Uh, you talk about Hitler. You talk about Stalin. You talk about Mao Zedong. Uh, you talk about Kim. Um, the first of the King family, the Kim family, obviously not not the, the the Kim family in its entirety. Although obviously there there would be a lot to be said. Was there anyone else from history that you would have included or you thought about including? Yeah, uh, I think that the particular despots that I focus on in terms of chronology and historical overlap, uh, in terms of making the argument about the book, the parallels we see so strongly in their lives. Uh, that there's a certain coherency to, to bringing in those six dictators. The argument about the ways that uh, certain educational advantages in their lives uh, help begin them, mark the start of their road towards tyranny. That really stands out in these six lives. You know, as I reflect now on other dictators, um, there's a lot we could speak about, right? We could talk about Pol Pot. Um, but the, the dictator that stands out to me, to, to me most in the moment um, in terms of parallels is someone like Vladimir Putin, who is, uh, who is committing war crimes, not with the belief uh, that he is doing something awful in Ukraine, but in a similar way as these men. Uh, and not, I'm not equating Vladimir Putin evenly or smoothly with any one of these men, but I, what I am saying is there's parallels. And the biggest parallel right now is that Vladimir Putin, what he is doing in Ukraine, I believe he is convinced that he is right to be doing it. And that's something that, again, brings me back to losing sleep. Crimes against humanity are being committed against Ukrainian civilians, and people are really suffering, including a lot of mothers in Russia who aren't going to see their sons again. And I mourn that as I mourn the suffering in Ukraine. But the relevance for our discussion is how is it possible that he thinks he's right? And ideologically and intellectually, what is the story of Vladimir Putin's life that has led him to this moment? Historians at this point will weigh in and say, oh, it's problematic to zero in on this great man of history myth, right? Are you overemphasizing these one personalities? Are there not these sweeping structural factors from macroeconomics to politics and so on, to revolutions that explain what is happening? And I'm not, I'm not dismissing that, I'm not diminishing that. The fact remains this though, right now there's a dictator in the Kremlin who, is responsible for what's happening and it's explicable. The parallel I see between Vladimir Putin and the dictators in this book is again, horrible things are happening. We want to explain it by saying, surely Vladimir Putin is a young man. He must've experienced terrible trauma. Uh, maybe he was mistreated by his parents. What is the story behind his lack of empathy for the suffering of so, so many people, right? Uh, Including and, his own people, yeah. Yeah, um, Vladimir Putin had a doting parents. They, he had a childhood that was not wealthy at all. I mean, his parents survived uh, World War II. Uh, they were survivors of the siege of Leningrad. But growing up, they, they adored him. They, they did what they could to help him get ahead. And growing up, we see another part of the story between Vladimir Putin that relates to Lenin or Mussolini or, or Kim or Mao, which is that he becomes wrapped up in this world of ideas at a young age. He's not reading Victor, Victor Hugo, but what he is reading is a spy book in the 1960s, later made into a really prominent Soviet film called The Shield on the Sword. And it's a story about KGB spies, right? Who are like saving the motherland with great courage. And again, the story is not one about uh, murder or, or criminality. It's one about heroism. Uh, Putin will walk into a KGB office in the 70s and try to volunteer as a, as a young man. Like, I would like to volunteer. And they had to politely say, like, that's not how this works. Like, you can't just come in the KGB office and volunteer, go to school. Maybe, maybe you might be contacted in the future. Get out of here. Uh, his role in the KGB is one in which he is um, 
when he does join the KGB, he's asked to join the KGB. He, he has this, this notion of the self-conceived hero in, my, hero in mind. I'm drawing, as I say this, on Masha Gessen's The, the Man Without a Face. There's another book called The, the New Czar uh, by Myers, which speaks about a lot of this. But as a young person, he has a vision of himself, like so many of us do. Not one of going out and committing crimes against humanity, but doing something great for our country. Yeah, leave, leaving a, a mark place. on the world. Yeah, and, and he wants, I think, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, which he called one of the great geopolitical catastrophes of the 20th century, he believes he's serving a larger purpose of Russian power, which isn't only about power, but the best interest of the Russian people. And he believes the ends justify the means. And that's, um, that, that's really hard for me to wrap my head around, but it's explicable. It's explicable. It, it's not, we must not give in to this intellectual impotence that, oh, well, this is horrible and we will never understand it. Uh, some things we might never get to the bottom of, but we have to try. And, and, and more than that, when we think about someone like uh, Putin, I think back to Mussolini's end, right? Which is, um, what should happen with Putin, right? And if we could hold Putin accountable, how would we hold him accountable? And I think we would have no greater obligation than to make sure we respected his human dignity, even as we sought to hold him accountable, even as we sought to ensure just punishment. What would a just punishment be? One anti-fascist journalist, when Mussolini is shot, uh, will say, with Claretta, will, you know, will say, his execution was justice. Uh, to have spared his life would have been sacred. How would we handle Vladimir Putin? And I think the story of this book is one that ends with an emphasis not only on accountability. Uh, we do not excuse. We hold people accountable for their crimes. But a story uh, that has to end with compassion, love, and mercy. Uh, that strength and opposition to tyranny is fundamental to happiness and existence on this planet. But so is love and mercy. That doesn't mean uh, necessarily forgiving. But what it does mean, if we could hold Vladimir Putin accountable, that we would think about what would be sacred. Uh, and, and it wouldn't be, I think, stringing him up. It would be standing up for the human dignity of those who maybe least deserve that extra protection. And that's the biggest parallel to my book that I wrestle with in my mind. Uh, that's fantastic, Brendan. Very, very well put. Um, that would be an excellent closing point. But I did want to ask you, uh, we have mentioned it a couple of times. I think we've skirted around it. And, and you, you've given us an idea. When people read Before Evil, what, what do you want them to come away with? What, what do you want them to learn from this book? Yeah, I think the first thing, right, is the emphasis on we're not looking for any certain recipe about how mass murdering dictators definitively come to be. You know, we, we want to look for a certain equation, story that helps us prevent these people in the future. And that's not how history works. History is an endless number of variables that are always changing. And we cannot corner any one equation of how such people come to be. The lesson that we do derive though, is recognizing that ideological radicalism is not only something that plays out among mass murderers, but it is something that we ourselves are susceptible to. And the story of these men, if you if listeners read Before Evil, they will see the story of young people that in many ways are uncomfortably relatable. And then so, so what, right? You know, what do we learn from that? Should we, um, should we not be talking more about the victims of these men rather than looking at their childhoods and humanizing them? And, and, and I think we have to do both. We have to never stop talking about their victims, but we humanize them for the larger purpose of realizing that the story of crimes against humanity, again, is a human one. And it's a story that requires us not only to condemn what we think is wrong, but to look in ourselves and be very, very, very careful about the ways that political radicalism and ideological fanaticism can lead to a conversation where we begin to say, 
we must do this. And yes, it is upsetting, right? And yes, people are going to suffer, but this is something that we must do for this larger end. Uh, that is a very, very dark road that we can go down. And uh, as I say at the very end of the book, courageous opposition is needed to confront tyranny over the ages, but so too is love and mercy. What does that mean? It means the only, I think, uh, best protection we have towards that road is empathy. Empathy. And it's very hard when people don't deserve empathy, but it is our ability to offer that compassion even as we hold people accountable, doesn't mean in any way we diminish the fact we're going to hold people accountable and they're going to be punished, right? But what it does mean is we have to distinguish ourselves by humanizing those who would not humanize us. Those who commit murder with sweeping generalizations and lose sight of the suffering they cause for individuals, we have to distinguish ourselves because it is the antithesis of their tyranny, not the height of complicity. And, the, and, I, and I hope that is a central uh, takeaway uh, if, if listeners would, uh, would like to read the book, I, please go to beforeevil.com. If you go to beforeevil.com, you can learn more about it. Uh, you also, there's a link to the publisher site where you can order signed copies with a, a message from me if you order uh, here soon. The release date is April 26th. And uh, I'm, I ex- it feels important to me. I'm not only excited about it, but it, I'm extremely motivated to have this conversation because I, I think it's part of what makes life worth living on this planet. That might sound grandiose, but a story that we need to impart to our kids and to ourselves, empathy, compassion, love, mercy, even as we have no illusions about the men we're talking about. Brandon, that was fantastic. Thank you so much for that. No, a real pleasure to speak with you, Mike. Thanks so much for having me on. You're most welcome and I hope to have the opportunity to collaborate again in future. Awesome. Cheers. Grazie. Once again, I really hope you enjoyed that interview. Remember that you can look Brandon up at beforeevil.com where you can also see how to get a copy of the book. This episode was for the Fascism 100 series in which we explore the rise and fall of fascism 100 years after its rise to power. If you'd like to get in touch, you can do so Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com At the same URL, you can click through to our social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can go to our support page and become a Patreon supporter and have access to ad-free episodes as well as extra content. Once again, thank you very much for listening and resist, resist, resist. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. 
With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.